0: Episode 5 The Scribblers Who Created Christmas, Part 2. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture
1: at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a doctoral candidate in English and publishing at Liverpool University in the UK.
0: Two notes before we begin. First, if you haven't already, it would be a good time for you to pause this episode and go back and listen to episode five, part one, in which we give a little background for the short story we're reading and begin reading the short story. And the second note is that we had a series of technological catastrophes in recording these episodes. And we've done our best to clean up the audio files for your listening pleasure, but due to holidays and scheduling constraints, we were unable to re-record to give you the quality of episodes that we would hope to present. So we apologize about that. We are making it one of our New Year's resolutions to improve our sound quality and we are studying up on ways to do that but one of the biggest ways is something that we could use your help to pull off. Eleanor is just working with whatever equipment she has on hand or can borrow. If we can manage to buy her a nice microphone that will solve probably 80% of our problems so if you'd like to pitch in you could head on over to our patreon page it's www.patreon.com slash victorianscribblers or um i'll have a donate button up on our website soon and we also have a coffee account which i've linked on some social media pages where you can just pitch in the price of a cup of coffee to help us out so if you love our podcast and would like to help us achieve better quality sound and produce more content those are some ways that would really help us out a lot, and we would really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Hope you enjoy the rest of the story.
1: So Nathan went to church with a strip of crape as narrow as Bessie durst ventured to make it round his hat. Such is the contradictoriness of human nature that though he was most anxious his wife should not hear of his conviction that their son was dead, he was half hurt that none of the neighbours noticed his sign of mourning so far as to ask him for whom he wore it. But after a while, when they never heard a word far more about Benjamin, The household wonder as to what had become of him grew so painful and strong that Nathan no longer kept his idea to himself. Poor Hester, however, rejected it with her whole will, heart and soul. She could not and would not believe, nothing should make her believe, that her only child, Benjamin, had died without some sign of love or farewell to her. No argument could shake her in this. She believed that if all natural means of communications between him and her had been cut off at the last supreme moments, if death had come upon him in an instant, sudden and unexpected, Her intense love would, she believed, have been supernaturally made conscious of the blank. Nathan, at times, tried to feel glad that she could still hope to see the lad again, but at other moments, he wanted her sympathy in his grief, self-reproach, his weary wonder as to how and what they had done wrong in the treatment of their son, that he had been such a care and sorrow to his parents. Bessie was convinced, first by her aunt and then by her uncle, honestly convinced, on both sides of the argument, and so, for the time, able to sympathise with each. But she lost her youth in a very few months. She looked set and middle-aged long before she ought to have done, and rarely smiled and never sang again. All sorts of new arrangements were required by the blow which told so miserably upon the energies of all the household at Navend. Nathan could no longer go about and direct his two men, taking a good turn at work himself at busy times. Hester lost her interest in her dairy. Indeed, her increasing loss of sight unvisited her. Bessie would either do field work or attend to the cows, the shippin or churn, or make cheese she did all well no longer merrily but with something of stern cleverness but she was not sorry when her uncle one evening told her aunt and her that a neighbouring farmer job kirkby had made him an offer to take so much of his land off his hands as would leave him only a pasture enough for two cows and no arable to attend to while father kirkby not wished to interfere with anything in the house only would be glad to use some of the outbuildings for his fattening cattle
0: we can do a hockey and daisy. It'll leave us eight or ten pound of butter to take to the market in summertime and keep us from thinking too much, which is what I'm dreading on as I get into years.
1: Aye, so his wife. I'll not have to go so far afield because only the acid tofters is on my hands. I'm best we'll have to gear up the pride of cheese and tack to making cream butter. And always I always it a fancy for trying at cream butter, but the way it to be used, that's where I came from. They never looked me away butter. When Hester was left alone with Bessie, she said, in allusion to this change of plan. Thank to the Lord, as it is, as it is, for I always feared Nathan would have to gear up the house and farm altogether, and then the lad would na know where to find us when he came back from America. He's gone there for to make his fortune, I'll be bound. Keep up the heart, lass. He'll be home some day, and as soon as Wild oats. eh but that is a pretty story in the gospels about the prodigal who eat the pig's middle at one time, but ended a clover in his father's house and I'm sure our Nathan will be ready to forgive him, love him, and make much of him. Maybe a deal more, nor me, he never gave in to his death. It'd be likened to a resurrection to our Nathan. Father Kirkby, then, took by far the greater part of the land belonging to Naben Farm, and the work about the rest and about the two remaining cows was easily done by three pairs of willing hands with a little occasional assistance. The Kirkby family were pleasant enough to have to deal with. There was a son, a stiff, grave bachelor, who was very particular and methodical about his work, and rarely spoke to anyone. But Nathan took it into his head that John Kirby was looking after Bessie, and was a good deal troubled in his mind in consequence. For it was the first time he had to face the effects of his belief in his son's death, and he discovered, to his own surprise, that he had not that implicit faith, which would make it easy for him to look upon Bessie as the wife of another man, the one to whom she had been betrothed in her youth. As, however, John Coteby seemed in no hurry to make his intentions, if indeed he had any, clear to Bessie. It was only at times that this jealousy on behalf of his lost son seized upon Nathan. but people, old and in deep hopeless sorrow, grow irritable at times. However, they will repent and struggle against their irritability. There were days when Bessie had to bear a good deal from her uncle. but She loved him so dearly and respected him so much. The high as her temper was to all other people, she never returned him a rough or impatient word and she had a reward in the conviction of his deep, true affection for her, and her aunt's entire and most sweet dependence upon her. One day, however, it was near the end of November, Bessie had had a good deal to bear that seemed more than usually unreasonable on behalf of her uncle. The truth was that one of Kirkby's cows was ill, and John Kirkby was a good deal about in the farmyard. Bessie was interested about the animal, and had helped in preparing a mash over their own fire that had to be given warm to the sick creature. John had been out of the way, there would have been no one more anxious about the affair than Nathan, both because he was naturally kind-hearted and neighbourly, and also because he was rather proud of his reputation for knowledge in the diseases of cattle. But because John was about, and Bessie helping a little in what had to be done, Nathan would do nothing and chose to assume this.
0: Nothing to think on, no, the beast, but lads and lasses were always fain to be feared on
1: something. Now John was upwards of forty, and Bessie nearly eight and twenty. So the terms lads and lasses did not exactly apply to their case. When Bessie brought the milk in from their own cows towards half past five o'clock, Nathan bade her make the doors, and not be running out in the dark and cold about other folks' business. And though Bessie was a little surprised and a good deal annoyed at his tone, she sat down to her supper without making a remonstrance. It had long been Nathan's custom to look out at the glassing at night to see what
0: make a weather it were.
1: I went towards half past eight, he got his stick out and went out, two or three steps from the door, which opened into the house place where they were sitting. Hester put her hands on her niece's shoulder and said he's gotten no a touch of the rheumatics, as twinges him and makes him speak so sharp. I did not like to ask the air for him, but how's yon poor beast?
0: Very ailing, belike. John Kirby were off for the cow doctor when I came in. I reckon they'll have to stop up with at night.
1: Since their sorrows, her uncle had taken to reading a chapter in the Bible aloud for lasting at night. He could not read fluently, and often hesitated long over a word which he miscalled at length. The very fact of opening the book seemed to soothe these old, bereaved parents, for it made them feel quiet and safe in the presence of God, and took them out of the cares and troubles of this world into that futurity which, however dim and vague, was to their faithful hearts a sure and certain rest. This little quiet time Nathan sitting with his horn spectacles on, the tallow candle between him and his Bible, and throwing a strong light on his reverent earnest face. Hester sitting on the other side of the fire, her head bowed in attentive listening, now and then shaking it and moaning a little but when a promise came, are any good tidings of great joy, saying Amen with further. Bessie, by her aunt, perhaps her mind a little wandering to some household cares, or it might be on thoughts of those who were absent. This is a quiet boy, as I say, I was grateful and soothing. to this household as a lullaby to a tired child. But this night, Bessie, sitting opposite to the long low window, only shaded by a few geraniums that were in the sill, at the door alongside that window, through which her uncle had passed not a quarter of an hour before, saw the wooden latch of the door gently and almost noiselessly lifted up, as if someone were trying it from the outside. She was startled and watched again intently, but it was perfectly still now. She thought it must have been that it had not fallen into its proper place when her uncle had come in and locked the door. It was just enough to make her uncomfortable, no more, and she almost persuaded herself it must have been a fancy. Before she went upstairs, however, she went to the window to look out into the darkness, but all was still. Nothing to be seen, nothing to be heard. So the three went quietly upstairs to bed. The house was little better than a cottage. The front door opened on a house place, over which was the old couple's bedroom. To the left as you entered this house place, and at right angles with the entrance was a door that led into the small parlour, which was Hester and Bessie's pride although not half as comfortable as the house-place, and never on any occasion used as a sitting-room. There were shelves and bunches of honesty in the fireplace, the best chest of drawers and a company set of gaudy-coloured china, and a bright common carpet on the floor, but all failed to give it the aspect of the homely comfort and delicate cleanliness of the house-place. Over this parlour was the bedroom which Benjamin had slept in when a boy, when at home. It was kept still in a kind of readiness for him. The bed was still there, in which none had slept since he eight or nine years ago. And every now and then the woman was taken quietly and silently up by his own mother and the bed thoroughly aired. But this she did in her husband's absence and without saying a word to anyone. Nor did Bessie offer to help her, though her eyes often filled with tears as she saw her aunt still going through the hopeless service. For the room had become a receptacle for all unused things, and there was always a corner of it appropriated to the winter's store of apples. To the left of the house-place, as you stood facing the fire, on the side opposite to the window and outer door, were two other doors. The one on the right opened up to a kind of back kitchen and had a lean to roof and a door opening onto the farmyard and back premises. The left hand door gave on the stairs, underneath which was a closet in which various household treasures were kept, and beyond that the dairy over which Vessie slept. Her little chamber window opening just above the sloping roof of the back kitchen. There were neither blinds nor shutters to any of the windows, either upstairs or down. The house was built of stone there was a heavy framework of the same material round the little casement windows but the long low window of the house-place was divided by what in grander players, would be called mullions by nine o'clock this night of which i am speaking all had gone upstairs to bed it was even later than usual for the burning of candles was regarded so much in the light of extravagance that the household kept early hours even for country folk but somehow this evening Bessie could not sleep although in general she was in deep slumber five minutes after her head touched the pillow her thoughts were on the chances for John Kirby's cow, and a little fear lest the disorder might be epidemic and spread to their own cattle. Across all these homely cares came a vivid uncomfortable recollection of the way in which the door latch went up and down without any sufficient agency to account for it. She felt more sure now than she had done downstairs, that it was a real movement and no effect of her imagination. She wished that it had not happened just when her uncle was reading, that she might at once have gone quick to the door and convinced herself of the cause as it was, I thought rather uneasily on the supernatural, and let to Benjamin, her dear cousin and pale fellow, really her early lover. She had long given him up as lost forever to her, if not actually dead. This very giving him up forever involved a free, full forgiveness of all his wrongs to her. She thought tenderly of him as of one who might have been led astray in his later years, and who existed rather in her recollection as the innocent child, the spirited lad, the handsome, dashing young man. John Kirkby's quiet attentions ever betrayed his wishes to Bessie, if indeed he ever had any wishes on the subject. Her first feeling would have been to compare his weather-beaten, middle-aged face and figure, with the face and figure she remembered well, but never more expected to see in his life. So thinking, she became very restless and weary of bed, and after long tossing and turning, ending in a belief that she should never go to sleep at all that night, she went off soundly and suddenly. As suddenly was she wide awake, sitting up in bed, listening to some noise that must have awakened her, but which was not repeated for some time. Surely it was in her uncle's room. Her uncle was up, but for a minute or two there was no further sound. Then she heard him open this door and go downstairs with hurried, stumbling steps. She now thought that her aunt must be ill and hastily sprang out of bed and was putting on her petticoat with hurried, trembling hands and had just opened her chamber door. When she heard the front door undone and a scuffle as of the feet of several people and many rude, passionate words spoken hoarsely below the breath, Quick as thought, she understood it all. The house was lonely. Her uncle had the reputation of being well-to-do. They had pretended to be belated, and had asked their way or something. What a blessing that John Copey's cow was sick, for there were several men watching with him. She went back, opened the window, squeezed herself out, slid down the lean to roof, and ran barefoot and breathless to the shippen.
0: John, John, for the love of God, come quick! There's robbers in the house, and uncle and aunt will be murdered!
1: She whispered in terrified accents through the closed and barred shippen door. In a moment it was undone, and John and the cow doctor stood there, ready to act, if they but understood her rightly. Again she repeated her words, with broken half-unintelligible explanations of what she as yet did not rightly understand.
0: Fro doors open, sayest thou?'
1: said John, arming himself with a pitchfork, while the cow doctor took some other implements.
0: "'Then I reckon we'd best make for that way of getting into the house and catch em all in a trap.' run run was all bessie could say
1: taking hold of john copley's arm and pulling him along with her swiftly did the three run to the house round the corner and in at the open front door the man carried the horn lantern they had been using in the shipping and by the sudden oblong light that it threw upon objects bessie saw the principal one of her anxiety her uncle lying stunned and helpless on the kitchen floor her first thought was for him she had no idea that her aunt was in any immediate danger although she heard the noise of feet and fierce subdued voices upstairs
0: "'Make the door behind us
1: less. We'll not let them escape,' said brave John Kirkby, dauntless in a good cause, though he knew not how many there might be above. The cow-doctor fastened and locked the door, saying, "'There!' in a defiant tone, as he put the key in his pocket. It was to be a struggle for life or for death, or at any rate, for effectual capture or a desperate escape. he kneeled down by her uncle, who did not speak or give any sign of consciousness. As he raised his head by drawing a pillow off the settle and putting it under him. She longed to go for water into the back kitchen, for the sound of a violent struggle, and of heavy blows, and of low, hard curses, spoken through closed teeth, and muttered passion, as though her breath were too much needed for action to be wasted in speech, kept her still and quiet by her uncle's side in the kitchen, while the darkness might almost be felt, so thick and deep was it. Once, in a pause of her own heart's beating, a sudden terror came over her, She perceived, in that strange way in which the presence of a living creature forces itself on her consciousness in the darkest room, that someone was near him, keeping still as she. It was not the poor old man's breathing that she heard, nor the radiation of his presence that she felt. Someone else was in the kitchen, another robber perhaps, left to guard the old man with murderous intent and his consciousness returned. Now Bessie was fully aware that self-preservation would keep her terrible companion quiet, as there was no motive for his betraying himself stronger than the desire for escape. Any effort for which he, the unseen witness, must know, would be rendered abortive by the fact of the door being locked. Yet the knowledge that he was there, close to her, still silenced the grave. With fearful it might be deadly unspoken thoughts in his heart, possibly even with keener and stronger sight than hers, as long as him to the darkness, able to discern her figure and posture and glaring at her like some wild beast. Bessie could not fail to shrink from the vision that her fancy presented. And still the struggle went on upstairs, feet slipping, blows sounding and the wrench of intentioned aims, The strong gasps for breath, as the wrestlers paused for an instant. In one of these pauses, Bessie felt consciousness of a creeping movement close to her, which ceased when the noise of the strife above died away, and was resumed when it again began. She was aware of it by some subtle vibration of the air, rather than by touch or sound. She was sure that he who had been close to her one minute, as she knelt, was the next, passing stealthily towards the inner door which led to the staircase. She thought he was going to join and strengthen his accomplices, and with a great cry she sprang after him. But just as she came to the doorway, through which some portion of light from the upper chambers came, she saw one man thrown downstairs with such violence that he fell almost at her very feet, while the dark creeping figure glided suddenly away to the left and suddenly entered the closet beneath the stairs. Bessie had no time to wonder as to his purpose in so doing, whether he had at first designed to aid his accomplices in their desperate flight, he was an enemy a robber that was all she knew and she sprang to the door of the closet and in a trice had locked it on the outside and then she stood frightened panting in that, that dark corner sick with terror lest the man who lay before her was either john kirkby or the cow doctor if it were either of those friendly two what would become of the other of her aunt her uncle herself in a very few minutes this wonder was ended her two defenders came slowly and heavily downstairs dragging with them man fierce, sullen, despair, disabled with terrible blows, which had made his face one bloody swollen mess. As for that, neither John nor the cow doctor was much more presentable. One of them bore the lantern in his teeth, for all their strength was taken up by the weight of the fellow they were bearing. "'Take care,' said Bessie from her corner.
0: "'There's a chap just beneath your feet. I don't know if he's dead or alive, and Uncle lies on the floor just beyond.'
1: They stood still on the stairs for a moment. Just then the robber they had thrown downstairs stirred and moaned.
0: Bessie, said John. Run off to the stable and fetch ropes and gearing for to bind em, and we'll red the house on em, and thou canst go see after the old folks who need it sadly.
1: Bessie was back in a very few minutes. When she came in there was more light in the house place, for someone had stirred up the raked fire.
0: That felly makes as though his leg were broken
1: said John, nodding towards the man still lying on the ground. Bessie felt almost sorry for him as they handled him, not over gently, and bound him only half-conscious, as hardly and tightly as they had done his fierce, surly companion. She even felt so sorry for his evident agony as he turned him over and over that she ran to get him a cup of water to moisten his lips. "'I'm loth to
0: leave you with him alone,' said John, "'though I'm thinking his leg is broken for certain.' "'and he can't stir, even if he comes to hisself, to do ya any harm. "'But we'll just take off this chap and make sure of him, "'and then one on us'll come back to ya, "'and we can maybe find a gate or so for ya to get shut on him out of the house. "'This valley's made safe enough, I'll be bound.'
1: "'said he, looking at the burglar, who stood bloody and black, "'with hydrant on his sullen face. "'His eye caught Bessie's as hers fell on him, "'with dread so evident that it made him smile.' and the look and the smile prevented the words from being spoken which were on Bessie's lips. She dared not tell before him that an able-bodied accomplice still remained in the house, lest, somehow, the door which kept him a prisoner should be broken open, and the fight renewed. So she only said to John, as he was leaving the house,
0: "'Thou'd not be long away, for I'm afeard of being left with this man.' "'He'll no do thee harm,' said John. "'No, but I'm afeard lest he should die, and there's uncle and aunt. Come back soon, John.'
1: "'Aye, aye.' Said he, half pleased.
0: I'll be back, never fear me.
1: So Bessie shut the door after them, but did not lock it for fear of mischances in the house, and went once more to her uncle, whose breathing by this time was easier than when she had first returned into the house-place with John and the doctor. By the light of the fire too, she could now see that he had received a blow on the head, which was probably the occasion of his stupor. Round this wound, which was now bleeding pretty freely, Bessie put cloths dipped in cold water. And then, leaving him for a time, she lighted a candle and was about to go upstairs to her aunt, when, just as she was passing the bound and disabled robber, she heard her name softly, urgently called
0: Bessie, Bessie.
1: At first the voice sounded so close that she thought it must be the unconscious wretch at her feet, but once again that voice thrilled through her
0: Bessie, Bessie, for
1: God's sake, let me out. She went to the stair-closet door and tried to speak. Could not, her heart beat so terribly again close to her hair ear.
0: Bessie, Bessie, you'll be back directly. Let me out, I say. For God's sake, let
1: me out. And he began to kick violently against the panels. Hush, hush, she said, sick with a terrible dread, yet with a will strongly resisting her conviction. Who are you? But she knew, knew quite well. Benjamin. An oath. Let me out, I say,
0: or i will be off, and out of England by tomorrow night, never to come back, and you'll
1: have all my father's money.
0: Do you think I care for that?
1: Said Bessie vehemently, feeling the trembling hands of the lock.
0: I wish there was none such a thing as money in the world, afore you'd come to this. There, you're free, and I charge you never to let me see your face again. I'd never ha let you loose but for fear o' breaking their hearts, if ye had not killed them already.
1: But, before she had ended her speech, he was gone, off into the black darkness, leaving the door open wide. With a new terror in her mind, Bessie shut it afresh, shut it and bolstered it this time. Then she sat down on the first chair, and relieved her soul by giving a great and exceeding bitter cry. But she knew it was no time for giving way, and lifting herself up with as much effort as if she, each of her limbs was a heavy weight, she went into the back kitchen, and took a drink of cold water.
0: To her surprise, she heard her uncle's voice saying feebly, Carry me up and lay me
1: by her. But Bessie could not carry him. She could only help faint exertions to walk upstairs, and by the time he was there, sitting, panting on the first chair she could find, John Kirkby and Atkinson returned. John came up now to her aid. Her aunt lay across the bed in a fainting fit, and her uncle sat in so utterly broken down a seat that Bessie feared immediate death for both. But John cheered her up and lifted the old man into his bed again. And, while Bessie tried to compose poor Hester's limbs into a position of rest, John went down to hunt about for the little storage gin, which was always kept in a corner cupboard against emergencies. They've had a sore fight, said he, shaking his head, as he poured a little gin and hot water into their mouths with a teaspoon, while Bessie chafed their cold feet.
0: And it and the cold have been welly too much for em, um, poor old folk.
1: He looked tenderly at them, and Bessie blessed him in her heart, blessed him unaware for that look.
0: I mun be off. I sent Atkinson up to the farm for to bring down Bob, and Jack came wim him back to the ship-on for to look after other men. He began blackguarding us all around, so Bob and Jack were gagging him with bridles when I left. "'Never give heed to what he says,' cried poor Bessie, a new panic was setting her. "'Folks of his sort are always for dragging other folks into their mischief. I'm right glad he were well gagged.' "'Well?' But what I were saying were this. Atkinson and me will take the other chap, who seems quiet enough, to the shipping, and it'll be one piece of work for it to mind them, and the cow, and I'll saddle old bay mare and ride for constables and doctor for Highminster. I'll bring Dr. Preston up to see Nathan and Hester first, and then I reckon the broken leg chap down below must have his turn, for all as he's met with his misfortunes in a wrong line of life. Aye. Said so, Pessie. We mun had the doctor sure enough, for look at them how they lie, like two stone statues on a church monument, so sad and solemn. There's a look of sense coming back into their faces, though, since they supped that gin and water. I'd keep on a-bathing his head and giving them a sup on it from time to time, if I was you, Bessie."
1: Bessie followed him downstairs and lighted the men out of the house. She dared not light them, carrying their burden even until they passed round the corner of the house so strong was her fearful conviction that benjamin was lurking near seeking again to enter she rushed back into the kitchen bolted and barred the door and pushed the end of the dresser against it shutting her eyes as she passed the uncurtained window for fear of catching a glimpse of a white face pressed against the glass and gazing at her the poor old couple lay quiet and speechless although hester's position had slightly altered she had turned a little on her side towards her husband and had laid one shrivelled arm around his neck but he was just as Bessie had left him, with the wet clothes round his head. His eyes, not wanting in a certain intelligence, but solemn and unconscious to all that was passing around, as the eyes of death. His wife spoke a little from time to time, said a word of thanks, perhaps or so, but he never. All the rest of that terrible night, bessie tended the poor old couple with constant care. Her own heart so stunned and bruised in its feeling that she went about her pious duties almost like one in a dream. November morning was long in coming, nor did she perceive any change either for the worse or the better before the doctor came about eight o'clock. John Colby brought him, and was full of the capture of the two burglars. As far as Bessie could make out, the participation of that unnatural third was unknown. It was a relief, almost sickening in the revulsion it gave her from her terrible fear, which now she felt had haunted and held possession of her all night long, and had in fact paralysed her from thinking. Now she felt and thought with acute and feverish vividness, owing no doubt in part to the sleepless night she had passed. She felt almost sure that her uncle, possibly her aunt too, had recognised Benjamin. There was a faint chance that they had not done so, and wild horses should never tear the secret from her, nor should any inadvertent word betray the fact that there had been a third person concerned. As to Nathan, he had never uttered a word. It was her own silence that made Bessie feel, lest Hester knew, somehow, that her son was concerned. The doctor examined them, them both closely, looked hard at the wound on Nathan's head, asked questions which Hester answered shortly and unwillingly, and Nathan not at all, shutting his eyes as if even the sight of a stranger was pain to him. Bessie replied in their stead to all that she could answer respecting their state, and followed the doctor downstairs with a beating heart. When they came into the house-place, they found John had opened the outer door to let in some fresh air, had brushed the hearth and made up the fire, and put the chairs and table in their right places. He reddened a little as Bessie's eyes fell upon his swollen and battered face. He tried to smile it off in a dry kind of way.
0: You see, I'm an old bachelor, and I just thought as I'd read up things a bit. How done you find em, doctor? Well, the poor old couple have had a terrible shock. I shall send them some soothing medicine to bring down the pulse, and a lotion for the old man's head. It is very well it bled so much. There might have been a good deal of inflammation.
1: So he went on, giving directions to Bessie for keeping Quietly in bed through the day. From these directions she gathered that they were not, as she had feared all night long, near to death. The doctor expected them to recover, though they would require care. She almost wished it had been otherwise, and that they, and she too, might have just lain down to their rest in the churchyard. So poor did life seem to her, so dreadful the recollection of that subdued voice of the hidden robber, smiting her with recognition. All this time John was getting things ready for breakfast, with something of the handiness of a woman. Bessie half-resented his officiousness, pressing Dr Preston to have a cup of tea. She did so want him to be gone and leave her alone with her thoughts. She did not know that all was done for love of her, that the hard-featured, short-spoken John was thinking all the time how ill and miserable she looked, and trying with tender artifices to make it incumbent upon her of hospitality to share Dr Preston's meal.
0: I've seen as the cows is milked, said he. "'Yorn and all, and Atkinson's brought ours round fine. What in the mercy it were, as she were sick just very night. Yon two chaps that em made short work on it if you hadn't fetched us in. And as it were, we had a sore tussle. One on em will bear the marks on it to his dying day. Why not he, doctor?' "'He'll barely have his leg well enough to send his trial at York assizes. The They're coming off in a fortnight from now.' "'Aye, and that reminds me, Bessie, you'll have to go witness before Justice Royd's. Constables bade me tell ya, and give ya the summons. Do not be feared, it will not be a long job, though I'm not saying as it'll be a pleasant one. You'll have to answer questions as to how, and all about it, and Jane- His sister? Will come and stop with the old folks, and I'll drive ya in the Chandri. It's a good time for a break. We'll be right back.
1: Bessie's colour blanched and her eye clouded. No one knew how she apprehended lest she should have to say that Benjamin had been of the gang, if, indeed, in some way the law had not followed on his heels quick enough to catch him. But that trial was spared her. She was warned by John to answer questions, and say no more than was necessary, in fear of making her story less clear. And as she was known, by character at least, to Justice Wards and his clerk, they made the examination as little formidable as possible. When all was over, and John was driving her back again. He expressed his rejoicing that there would be evidence enough to convict the men without summoning Nathan and Hester to identify them. Bessie was so tired that she hardly understood what an escape it was, how far greater than even her companion understood. Jane Kirkby stayed with her for a week or more and was an unspeakable comfort. Otherwise, she sometimes thought she should have gone mad. The face of her uncle always reminded her in its stony expression of agony of that fearful night. Her heart was softer in her sorrow, as became one of her faithful and pious nature. But It was easy to see how her heart bled inwardly. She recovered her strength sooner than her husband, but as she recovered, the doctor perceived the rapid approach of total blindness. Every day, nay, every hour of the day, Bessie dared, without fear, exciting their suspicions and her knowledge. She told them, as she had anxiously told them at first, that only two men and those perfect strangers had been discovered as being concerned in the burglary. Her uncle would never have asked a question about it, even if she had withheld all information about the affair, but she noticed the quick, watching, waiting glance of his eye whenever she returned from any person or place where she might have been supposed to gain intelligence if Benjamin was suspected or caught, and she hastened to relieve the old man's anxiety by always telling all that she had heard, thankful that as the days passed on, the danger she sickened to think of grew less and less. Day by day, Bessie had grown for thinking that her aunt knew more than she had apprehended at first. There was something so very humble and touching in Hester's blind way of feeling about her husband, stern boy-begone Nathan, and mutely striving to console him in the deep agony of which Bessie learnt from this loving, piteous manner, that her aunt was conscious. Her aunt's face looked blankly up into his, tears slowly running down from her sightless eyes, while from time to time, when she thought herself unheard by any save him, she would repeat such texts as she had heard in church in happier days and which she thought, in her true, simple piety, might tend to console him. Yet day by day her aunt grew more and more sad. Three or four days before a time, two summonses to attend the trial at York were sent to the old people, neither Bessie, nor John, nor Jane, could understand this. Their own notices had come long before, and they had been told that their evidence would be enough to convict. But alas, the fact was that the lawyer employed to defend the prisoners had heard from them that there was a third person engaged, and had heard who that third person was and it was this advocate's business to diminish, if possible, the guilt of his clients, by proving that they were but tools in the hands of one who had his superior knowledge of the premises and the daily customs of the inhabitants, been the originator and planner of the whole affair. To do this, it was necessary to have the evidence of the parents, who, as prisoners had said, was to recognise the voice of the young man, their son. But no one knew that Bessie, too, could have borne witness to his having been present, as it was supposed that Benjamin had escaped out of England, there was no exact betrayal of him on the part of his accomplices. Wondering, bewildered, and weary, the old couple reached York in company with John and Bessie on the eve of the day of the trial. Nathan was still so self-contained that Bessie could never guess what had been passing in his mind. He was almost passive under his old wife's trembling caresses. He seemed hardly conscious of them, so rigid was his demeanour. She, Bessie feared at times, was becoming childish. She had evidently so great and anxious a love for her husband that her memory seemed going in her endeavours to melt the stoniness of his aspect and manners. She appeared occasionally to have forgotten why he was so changed, in her piteous little attempts to bring him back to his former self. "'They'll
0: for sure never torture them when they see what old folks they are,' cried Bessie on
1: the morning of the trial, a dim fear looming over her mind.
0: "'They'll never be so cruel,
1: for sure.' "'But for sure it was so. The barrister looked up at the judge, almost apologetically, as he saw how hoary-headed and woeful an old man was put into the witness box when the defence came on, and Nathan Huntred was called on for his evidence.
0: "'It is necessary on behalf of my clients, my lord, that I should pursue a course which, for all other reasons, I deplore.' "'Go on,' said the judge. "'What is right and legal must be done.'
1: But an old man himself he covered his quivering mouth with his hand as Nathan, with grey, unmoved face and solemn, hollow eyes, placing his two hands on each side of the witness box, prepared to give his answers to questions, the nature of which he was beginning to foresee, but would not shrink from replying to you truthfully.
0: The very stones rise up against such a sinner. Your name is Nathan Huntroyd, I believe? It is. You live at Nabben Farm? I do. Do you remember the night of November the 12th? Yes. You were awakened that night by some noise, I believe? What was it?
1: As he said to himself with a kind of dull sense of the eternal justice.
0: It was a throwing up of stones against our window. Did you hear it at first? No. What awakened you then? She did. And then you both heard the stones? Did you hear nothing else?
1: Lord Mon's eyes fixed themselves upon his questioner with the look Creature brought to bay. That look the barrister never forgets, it will haunt him till his dying day. Yes.
0: What? Our Benjamin asking us for to let him in. She said as it were him, leastways. And you thought it was him, did you not? I told her.
1: Long pause, then a low clear.
0: For to get to sleep, and not to be thinking that every drunken chap as passed by were our Benjamin, for that he were dead and gone. And she
1: this time in a louder voice.
0: She said as though she'd heard our Benjamin afore and she were welly awake, axing for to be let in, but I bade her ne'er heed her dreams, for turn on her but turn on her other side and get to sleep again. And did she?
1: A long pause. Judge, jury, bar, audience, all held their breath. At length Nathan said
0: No What did you do then? my lord i am compelled to ask these painful questions i saw she wouldn't be quiet she had always thought he would come back to us like the prodigal in the
1: gospels his voice choked a little he tried to make it steady succeeded and went on
0: she said if i wouldn't get up she would and just then i heard a voice i'm not quite myself gentlemen i've been ill and in bed and it makes me trembling like someone said "'Father, mother, I'm here, starving in the cold. Why not you get up and let me in?' And that voice was? "'It were like to our Benjamins. I see what not you're driving at, sir, and I'll tell you a truth, though it kills me to speak it. I don't say it were our Benjamin as spoke, mind you. I only say it were like. That's all I want, my good fellow. And on the strength of that entreaty spoken in your son's voice, you went down and opened the door to these two prisoners at the bar and to a third
1: man?' Nathan nodded assent, and even that counsel was too merciful to force him to put more into words. Call Hester Huntroyd. An old woman, with a face of which the eyes were evidently blind, with a sweet, gentle, careworn face, came into the witness-box and meekly curtsied to the presence of those whom she had been taught to respect, a presence she could not see. There was something in her humble, blind aspect, as she stood waiting to have something to her poor, troubled mind hardly knew. It touched all who saw her inexpressibly. Again the counsel apologized, but the judge could not reply in words. His face was quivering all over, and the jury looked uneasily at the prisoner's counsel. That gentleman saw that he might go too far and send their sympathies off on the other side, but one or two questions he must ask. So hastily re- recapitulating much that he had learned from Nathan, he said,
0: You believed it was your son's voice asking to be let in?
1: Aye, our Benjamin's come home. I'm sure. Choose where he is gone. She turned her head about, as if listening for the voice of her child in the hushed silence of the court.
0: "'Yes, he came home that night, and your husband went down to let him in?'
1: Well, oh, I believe he did. There was a great noise of foot downstairs.'
0: "'And you heard your son Benjamin's voice
1: among the others?' "'Is it doing harm, sir?' asked she, her voice growing more intelligent and intent on the business in hand.
0: "'That is not my object in questioning you. I believe he has left England, so nothing you can say will do him any harm.' You heard your son's voice, I say?
1: Yes, sir, for sure I did.
0: And some men came upstairs into your room. What did they say?
1: That's where our Nathan kept his stocking.
0: And you? Did you tell them?
1: No, sir, for I knew Nathan would not like me to. What did you do then? A shade of reluctance came over her face, as if she ran to perceive causes and consequences. I just screamed on, Bessie, that's my niece, sir.
0: And you heard someone shout out from the bottom of the stairs?
1: She looked piteously at him, but did not answer.
0: Gentlemen of the jury, I wish to call your particular attention to this fact. She acknowledges she heard someone shout, some third person you observe, shout out to the two above. What did he say? That is the last question I shall trouble you with. What did the third person, left behind downstairs, say?
1: Her face worked, Her mouth opened two or three times as if to speak. She stretched out her arms imploringly, but no word came, and she fell back into the arms of those nearest to her. Nathan forced himself forward into the witness box.
0: My lord judge, a woman bore ye, as I reckon, it's a cruel shame to serve a mother so. It were my son, my only child, as calls out for us to open door, and who shouted out for to behold the old woman's throat if she didn't stop her voice, when who'd fain has cried for her niece to help? And now you've truth, and all the truth, and I'll leave you to the judgment of God for the way you've getting at it.
1: Four nights, the mother was stricken with paralysis and lay on her deathbed for the broken-hearted go home, to be comforted of God. That's the end of the story.
0: Phew, that was a doozy.
1: Yeah, it's a long but good un I would say.
0: I was thinking as we were reading it, um, of whether or not there's a word for like the, the coming-of-age story gone bad. Yes, that's... So it's like a buildings Roman, but like a, a an anti buildings Roman? I don't know.
1: <laughs> I think that should be if there isn't. Can I mean, be named after you. If you come up with it. <laughs> you definitely
0: want to be known for that one.
1: <laughs> I mean the reason I said before we started reading that that it fits Dickens' theme a lot a lot better than he seems to have realised is obviously his theme what he wanted was People who are haunted by their past selves, but this is a story about parents who are haunted A, by a kind of prodigal son who they think is dead and then pretends to rob them, and by having to recount that that's what happened.
0: Yeah, just like having to. It's almost like they're haunted by the reputation their son has squandered as much as anything else.
1: Yeah, and by the potential, I guess. Yeah. It's thoroughly certain they had him late in life so there was so much riding on this. Mhm. And I would imagine haunted by the fact that Bessie's basically given up her life to expecting to be his wife.
0: Mhm. Be- because of their expectations and not necessarily her own. Yeah. Yeah. Such a cheery holiday tale. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually it's interesting how different these are from our Christmas tales. I don't think this could be much further from a Christmas Prince.
0: Right, it would never be on the Hallmark channel.
1: <laughs> Netflix. So I'm going to call anyone out for like, reading this forty-three times in a day or something, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, because I read this chapter of a book that's really good that concerns this, which I will give the full title of in the show notes. But um, a Critical front Breakers, you know, she points out that it's much more disturbing than a supernatural haunting, and I think that's so true. Dickens's point is. Being haunted by memory and loss is worse than supernatural ghosts. Yes. Gaskell's really hit the nail on the head.
0: Mm-hmm. And it has all the markings of a haunting too, like, you know, Bessie imagining the white face pressed against the window at night and the latch that moves up and down almost of its own uh, will. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's like the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, I think that's some, because uh, the old nurse's story is a much more classic haunting. There's some white faces against glass in that, I think, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. So the reason this story is particularly interesting is the manuscript's creation. And yeah, I said earlier that Dickens is a super hands-on editor and made pretty extensive changes to contributions for all the year-round of household words. I was talking about North and South earlier, so he pretty famously did that there. He changed the name of the title, but then he also to changed the ending for all the year-round when it was published there unless it was Household Words, Um, it was Household Words, but once it shows the ending for its publication of Household Words, and also just was really strict about Word Limit, which was never Gaskell's strong suit. Mm -hmm.
0: Which I think also I read somewhere that he was kind of hypocritical about it, because he'd give himself free reign, but then be super strict with everyone
1: else. Yeah. I guess it's easier to tell other people not to do it. Right. Yeah, it's like it's a lot easier to tell your students to keep things concise, and then when you're doing it yourself, you're rambling.
0: Yeah. Make my students get to the thesis in the first page, but then I'm like 10 pages in.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so there's this pre-existing relationship of author-editor that is kind of complicated and he makes quite a lot of changes to the ghost in the garden room so obviously he provides that narrative framing at the start where it's supposed to be an old judge that haunts people with the story Mm -hmm. which is, I don't think adds anything to it and if anything takes something away.
0: And we never get back around to that at the end interestingly so like why is the judge the judge feels feels guilty that um, Hester dies and then starts haunting people because of it? Is that...
1: But the really weird thing about that is that Gaskell says within the story that this story always haunted the defense solicitor. Mm. Not the judge. Really odd.
0: Okay. Yeah, so why is... The judge died and then started haunting the solicitor to punish him for this catastrophe of a case?
1: Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Could be.
0: But then the would be Hester? Yeah, it's so weird. The frame narrative makes very little
1: sense. Dickens. I'm really conscious of being negative about Dickens, because my supervisor recently asked me why I hate him so much, and I'm like, I don't hate him, I'm just disappointed in him.
0: Like, I think he's a great writer, but he's also certainly an egomaniac.
1: <laughs> yeah, like I love his fiction, but every time I read a new story about his relations with people, I just, like, oh, I like this.
0: Yeah, like, he kind of made a mess of his personal life, but blamed other people for it, and like, you know, you do you, Dickens, but like, just take some responsibility, dude.
1: Yeah, no one's going to shame you for seeing this 18-year-old actress and deciding I want to be involved in this amazing in family. Just don't be mean to Catherine, your wife, while you're doing it. Yeah. just very <laughs> off-topic, but. So talking about their editorial relationship, so he would quite often give different names so he provided the name north and south which obviously ended up being pretty successful so that's a good part of that relationship not changing the ending obviously he knows this story the ghost in the garden room but it fits with the title everything's the ghost of the x room so it makes sense in this context Mm -hmm. but he also he seems to change the emphasis quite dramatically i haven't been able to see the i think the manuscript does still exist from what i was reading. I wasn't able to see it. Mm -hmm. But according to Baker, who did see it, he just makes Bessie more conventional and less combative than she appeared in Gaskell's original version and makes considerable cuts. Obviously, he has got to make the story fit, but it loses something. Um, I think what's really interesting is that usually, usually he would at least ask permission, you know, at least superficially, not necessarily waiting for a response, but he would at least ask permission to make changes. I think, especially with Gaskell, because there was a little bit of a it was a sensitive subject, but for this one he doesn't he just writes to her after the fact and says, Yeah, I've changed some things, and I hope you don't mind
0: that is interesting. I wonder if i like, I wonder if there was a reason like maybe um there was like, a time crunch and he just felt like he had to do it before the publication deadline, but who knows he could have just done it to do it,
1: yeah. Baker goes into the timeline, and I seem to remember that he had it pretty early, so he had time, basically. The impression I get is the the thing where you tell your mum after the fact that you pierced your nose, know, so that she can't say don't do it.
0: It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a much more eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, that's the impression I get, certainly. Especially because it's not in his usual nature. Usually he is pretty good at asking.
0: Yeah, such a weird change. Well, and I was surprised just to learn that she continued to work with him at all after the North and South serialization fiasco, because I just had read that she was so put off by it, you know? I mean, she basically, like, returned everything to her original plan when it was published in um, the traditional book format, so I... I had assumed that it was a burnt bridge, but I guess they continued to work together so that's, um, I wonder if they did after this, after he pulls this stunt. Um,
1: yeah, I can't think of the t- I think she does, though. Because I think some of the other Christmas stories are after this. It's not the last one, certainly.
0: I feel like she does, too. Um, we we can clarify this in the show notes though if we need
1: to. But there are other things like these aren't Dickens's fault by any means. but Quite a few occasions when her work is published under his name. Mm-hmm. This is published in a kind of anthology of Dickens's work in the US. Another story, Lizzie Lee, that she published in one of his magazines, turns up as written by him. Which I don't want to blame the American publishers completely for that because the way they appear is. Anonymously, so there's no name given. It just says all the year round, conducted by Charles Dickens. So his is the only name. Mm -hmm. You can kind of see where they're coming from, but also it's kind of an open secret that he's not writing all of them. They never pretend that he writes. With the Christmas editions, they want to make it look like he wrote all of them, and I think it was commonly thought that he wrote all of them, but there are some that aren't Christmas books that appear as if he wrote them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, especially on the American side, I know a lot of um, plagiarism was happening, and so they wouldn't have made the effort to find out about authorship before because they just wanted to get it out quickly. Like, again, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, because I know that's a huge issue around Dickens in the US, is his whole copyright crusades. But also, I don't know how know Gaskell was in the US in this time Dickens' name surely is gonna sell more coffee at the end of the day
0: yeah and I think that's the thing like maybe that's why she keeps working with him right you like, you have to keep collaborating with the biggest guy in your field
1: yeah if you can yeah the one, the one thing that does surprise me is it doesn't necessarily surprise me that she keeps working with him mm-hmm. but that she's kind of thought of as if he has a gap that he needs to fill he just goes oh yeah Gaskell will do that it's mm. her Percy Fitzgerald that mm. they kind of, if they need copy and they're short, uh, we'll get them on it. We'll, we'll sort us
0: out. Yeah, and that's night and day from his, like, Wilkie Collins, I suspect that he was often super jealous of. Like, Collins could give him a run for a money as the showpiece of an edition, you know? I wonder if he had, like, a mental category of which authors to turn to for what kinds of things. I'm sure he did. He was brilliant businessman.
1: Yeah, I'm sure he did. So the other interesting story is that Gaskell does... So her kind of business agreement with Dickens is that she can republish her stories separately. And she does do this. So she republishes Ghost in the Garden Room in a collection in May 1860 called Bright at Last in Other Tales. But in there, it's under the title of Crooked Branch. But the thing that's really bizarre about this is that she doesn't get her manuscript back. So she has to work from Dickens's copy that he's already changed. She can't go back to the things that he put out. She can't put them back in because she has no access to them. Wow.
0: That is super strange. So, like, there are three versions of the story? Yeah.
1: It's the original I mean, Dickens and then Cascals hmm. attempt to reclaim it. It's almost really fitting that if the parents in the story are upset about the potential of Benjamin and Bessie, then we're upset about the potential of whatever this manuscript was. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think for Gaskell, it was kind of just a fact of business that she wouldn't get her manuscripts back. And you find this in a lot of of minor characters, their names just change, and it's because she can't refer back to her original manuscript. Mm. And I guess to make copies just makes...
0: Especially at this point in time, right? Because they didn't have typewriters, they couldn't make manifold copies as they typed, so it would have just been all copying by hand, and that's a lot of work if you want to make sure you have a copy before you send it out.
1: Yeah, it's, it's all by hand, so it's a lot more work. So you can see why she did mm-hmm. it. But there is one that I mean, I don't, from memory, I don't think he adds too many things in. The one change that I remember is the last line where it says, Broken-hearted, go home to be comforted of God. Gaskell's copy has the bro- "the sorrowful go home to be comforted of God.
0: So he makes it, he sensationalises it a little bit there.
1: Yeah, I think also, obviously, Gaskell is deeply religious. Her husband's a minister. I feel like sorrowful is a bit more religious than broken-hearted. Somehow.
0: Because broken-hearted is pretty close to despairing and despair is kind of a thing like where you're giving up on god in many different denominations so having a broken heart i i could see where that might be just a step away from despair
1: yeah i guess it just seems a lot more human and less sorrowful seems on some level philosophical yeah and broken heart is just a lot less philosophical mhm
0: I'm really interested by the fact that she goes blind with, well, I mean from her injuries, but one could say blind with grief.
1: Yeah, I I think it's very risky ground to diagnose a literary character, but there are times when when it's it not saying she's become elderly and childish. That sounds to me like dementia, but then she can recall this perfectly, so maybe not. Mhm. Yeah, the fact that it physically affects her blindness is super interesting.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, like it seems more, and this is pre Freud, but it seems psychosomatic that she's repressing it the knowledge that her son was one of the robbers, and so like it's affecting her body in weird ways. But, it, but again, yeah,
1: I feel like the crucial bit is the bit that you can almost read past mm. Nathan says. That it was his son who shouted out for the, whole, the old woman's throat if she didn't stop the noise, as well as being robbed by her own son, who she loves so dearly. Mm-hmm. He's been like, oh yeah, just strangle my mum if she's...
0: Yeah. Repressing that violence, that violent speech on the part of her son leads to her, yeah.
1: Yeah, you could say it ultimately does kill her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think what I said before, it's just so much more haunting simple ghost and so hits it out of the park of what Dickens wanted that it's crazy that he says that he's complaining.
0: I know, it's absolutely the kind of thing that he asked for. And it doesn't sound like anyone else gave him what he wanted for this volume.
1: All the other stories in here are interesting, but yeah, one is a little ghost and then Sulla's a lot more kind of meta about it. And Collins is also a bit more experimental, I guess.
0: Yeah. And I think I found that these issues are digitized um, and have are available.
1: They are, yeah.
0: Yeah. What is it? Dickens Journals Online or something like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Dickens Journal Online have them all. Sorry, I was going to link them. I clearly just completely forgot. But yeah, it's, it's all online.
0: Yeah, so we will have a link to this specific issue, and so you can read the other stories in the order in which they appear and read it for the whole complete amalgamation of story. Yeah, I had a real
1: dilemma choosing which version of the story to include because like I, I have to include the version that comes from. Mm. Well, I, I included the text from Dickens Journal Online actually because they're so useful in the fact that they've just made it easily available. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like, but I want to include the. Crooked Branch version, Gaskell's final version.
0: Yeah. We have a link to that.
1: We will. Because even though, like I say, she wasn't able to go back to her original thoughts, you can at least see her trying to reframe it a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. At least get back to the spirit of what she imagined the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. which, if you're interested, you can do the same thing with North and South, because obviously when she mm-hmm. brings out the volume version, she does really some of the things that
0: Dickens had put. Yeah, there, there's a lot of fleshing out from what I understand. Which is normal, actually, for many serialized novels. Yeah. Not all, but many.
1: No, a lot completely changed from serial to volume.
0: Mm-hmm. I've heard, um, like, Thomas Hardy's Test...
1: Devil. Test the Doors
0: yeah so they censored it quite a lot in the serial version and so he had to add a lot to get back to his authorly vision for the story yeah
1: yeah it's it's the graphic that it's published in
0: yes yeah
1: i should remember
0: that because i just like took exams where i read that and about its serial publication yeah well I highly
1: recommend reading as many christmas issues of all the year-round household words that you can get your hands on, and especially Gasco's versions, and we will put a link to where you can buy your nurse's story in the show notes, definitely. hmm
0: Yes, so... Um... Thank you for listening, everyone. Please write in with any questions or comments you have on this episode or our first season. This is going to be our last episode for season one, and we will, we're will we currently planning season two, which we hope to have coming out to you soon. We do have a merch shop now. I don't think we can—or swag shop, I guess I called it. I don't think we can promote this enough. If you have last-minute Christmas shopping to do— Got some nice fuzzy sweaters. I'm wearing one right now with our logo on them. We have mugs, we have t-shirts, um, we have tote bags. So uh,
1: keep us in mind. if you've got anyone that you're not going to see until after Christmas, and you can be like, oh, I got, I definitely have this on time. But the mugs especially are really good.
0: Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks for listening. And have a lovely Christmas. And a happy new year. Bye. Bye. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to our website, www.victorianscribblers.com. There, you'll find all of our episodes, news and updates, a swag shop with cool things like coffee mugs, sweaters and t-shirts, and of course, links to all of our social media.
1: You can also find the link to our Patreon account, where a minimum monthly contribution will give you access to all sorts of goodies and extras we're able to keep growing and bringing you quality content because of our patrons. So if you love the show, please consider contributing.
0: Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. We'd really love to see some iTunes reviews under the tree this Christmas. music for this podcast courtesy of museopen www.museopen.org